You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. The Opinion Line on Quartz 96FM. Joined in the studio, I was laughing here during the news. If we tried once, we, we tried a hundred times over a period of nearly two years to, to speak, even on the telephone with Dr. Tony Hulhan, but it wasn't possible because he was just too inundated with work, I guess, during the pandemic to, to do any any uh, local or regional radio. So, so Tony, it's, 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 it's good to talk to you now. You come here uh, with your new book, We Need to Talk. Now, former Chief Medical Officer, you spent 14 years in that job. When I heard you were writing a book, Tony, I thought, great, because I've read three or four books on the pandemic written by various different people, and I thought, here's a take on the pandemic that I really want to hear. This is not a book about the pandemic. No. It's in there, mm-hmm. but it's only part of the book. This is a very personal story about you and your family and everything to do with that. It opens in a family occasion when you're getting word of what might be starting to happen in Wuhan. But this is a book about you and family and work. Why did you decide to take that approach, Tony? Okay, well, good morning, PJ, and thanks for having me, and good to be here in Cork, and good to be here in the studio with you. Um, The main motivation from my point of view is, in fact, my wife, Emer, who was diagnosed with multiple myeloma in 2012 and who died on the 19th of February of 2021. She had a story and she wanted that story to be told. And that story is in the book and that's the personal Mm. uh, story that weaves through it. And I can't tell the story of my life, if you like, without reflecting on both the personal and the professional. She had three main reasons really for, for wanting to tell the story. The first was she experienced, unfortunately, a delay in the diagnosis. Her, her cancer was called multiple myeloma. It's a cancer that usually occurs with people in older years. Yeah. It's not that common in people under the age of 50. She was 45 when she was diagnosed. Uh, she had two presentations to hospitals. Uh, there were re- referrals that were written by myself. We expressed a lot of concern in some of those referrals, and yet we were reassured by you know the, 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 the examinations that she received in the hospital, mm-hmm. that nothing serious was going on. And of course, that turned out not to be true. Uh, and we, we, she was very keen that that story would be told and that people you know, would be aware maybe of the importance of not necessarily questioning and distrusting what they're hearing from doctors, but but having having an open questioning mind. So that was, she that was, was a doctor reason. as well. She was a doctor. We were both yeah. classmates. We met yeah. in 1985 in, yeah. in UCD as medical students. Uh, the second reason was that towards the end of her life, she had significant radiotherapy and chemotherapy right the way through her, through her disease. Uh, it was becoming clear that she was experiencing a lot of side effects, but maybe not getting much in the way of benefit. And we had the knowledge, I suppose, of the importance of doing so, but also the courage to be able to precipitate a conversation, to start a conversation with the medical team that was looking after him or to say, is there a continuing value here and continuing treatment? And as a result of that, Emer stepped back from treatment in late 2020. Uh, and she came home. You could say she, she came off effectively to die. 
but because she was now free of both radiotherapy and chemotherapy and the side effects that went with them, she was actually, she improved. She improved quite significantly over a number of weeks. Now, she did subsequently uh, deteriorate in early February of 2021 and then subsequently, as I said, died on the 19th of February. But we got a family Christmas together in terms of how she was and how she was able to enjoy it, free of health services and drugs and medications and so on. The importance of some of those conversations being initiated either by doctors or sometimes by families and patients themselves, she wanted to highlight. And the third reason uh, is that we used a set of materials and people, some people may be familiar with these. The Hospice Foundation, uh, and I'm on the board now of that and I'm very glad to be in a position to support the work that they do, produced this so-called Think Ahead Pack. Mm-hmm. So a little bit like when you're setting out a will or when you're thinking about powers of attorney, you're thinking about the never-never, things we don't want to think about, but we have to. We all know that we're going to die. And they deal with a situation whereby if you're not in a situation where you're able to express your own wish because something has happened to mm-hmm. you, that people... No, because it's written down. And so this pack takes you through very practical conversations that you have. And we had those conversations. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we just do 20 minutes at a time and we'd put it away. Uh, But over time, we completed the Think Ahead pack. And it's there for anybody to download from the website of the Hospice Foundation. And it takes you into all sorts of practical things. Do you want to be buried or to be cremated? Mm -hmm. You know, what other wishes you have for how you want to be cared for towards the end of your life if you're not able to express that wish yourself? And even basic things like your bank account numbers, your Netflix password, these things that are actually really important in your everyday day life. Yeah. So there's incredibly helpful materials we got the benefit from. So she wanted those stories to be to be shared because mm. she thought that perhaps other people, did, other did families Did she ask you to write the book, Tony? She did, we spoke about it. And right. she, she wanted me to, to to tell her story. The, the the one that I began with, she actually wrote a letter of complaint, as it was at the time, to the hospital. Uh, and it's a very difficult letter to read. It runs to four or five pages. Uh, and she wanted the detail of that. and mm. to, About to, how they missed it. Yeah, and about the yeah. delay in the diagnosis. Because you now, talk about several admissions to ED with a, a lot yes. of pain and not yeah. knowing where it's come yeah. from and yeah. all yeah. this. Yeah. And then when you describe multiple myeloma, the... the it's an intensely painful cancer. You can feel the pain coming off the pages. It must have been off. It really was. And that's really the thing that Emir was most upset about. We knew that perhaps this was a, the nature of the diagnosis, that we couldn't prevent it. It's not ultimately a curable cancer, but we now have wonderful drugs that can slow down its progression. And if it had been picked up at an earlier stage, we think there's a very good chance that she would have experienced a lot less symptoms and pain. She had quite advanced bony disease when she was initially diagnosed. Mm -hmm. In retrospect, she was quite sick and she could have been spared at least some of those. So she lived with pain, you know, every day and she Mm -hmm. was on medication for that pain relief every day. It was was incurable, but they did drive it into remission at one point. Do you think it could have been stopped if it had been caught? Well, Stopped or put on hold? I I think we could have stopped the progression of very severe symptoms. I don't think we would have saved Emer's life necessarily, but she, she got, you know, eight and a half years in total yeah. after her initial diagnosis, which was beyond I think, anything we could have possibly mm-hmm. have imagined because she got wonderful care. In, in, in our case, it was in St. James's mm-hmm. Hospital under the direction of Professor Paul Brown with the bone marrow transplant unit. Mm-hmm. She had a bone marrow transplant in the spring of 2013. It was a friend, wasn't it, who eventually spotted it. A yeah, friendly, a doctor that you were friends with. Yeah, that's right. So a GP, first of all, a friend of mine that I asked to have a look when Emer got into a little a crisis, in, in fact. We had been reassured, as I said, by a couple of visits to an emergency department. But a GP friend of mine took a look and he really was concerned, maybe mm. a week or two after one of those uh, accident emergency visits. So we did get her into hospital under the care of Professor Hugh Mulcahy, who was, who was a friend of ours. Mm. And some of the initial investigations made clear that there was something serious going on. Now, he's a gastroenterologist, not the field of relevance Mm. at all. So the referral was then made 
to the mm. haematology team, the blood cancer team in, in St. James's Hospital. That's why she moved then from his care in St. Vincent's to St. Mm. James's. Mm-hmm. One might look at it and think, there you were, Chief Medical Officer, very high-ranking official in, 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 in the state, easy for you to move around from consultant to consultant. But did you go through the public system? Yes, absolutely. And I'll tell you that the public cancer services in this country are the best cancer services that we have in this country. They have well-organized multidisciplinary teams. And just by, you know, virtue of the work I was involved in, you'll be familiar with this concept of multidisciplinary teams. Mm -hmm. What's Mm -hmm. really important with cancer is that the diagnosis is made and you get the right diagnosis by a multidisciplinary team, not just one consultant. And then that the treatment is planned by that same multidisciplinary team. So we now have established centres, people call them centres of excellence, which mm-hmm. is probably not a great term, but centres well, of we, we, high standards. We have one of them you here. certainly have one of them here in Cork. And, and, and they yeah. treat all forms of cancer. You're a really yeah. expert uh, centre with wonderful doctors, surgeons, medical oncologists, radiation oncologists and so on. I know quite a number of them. We're, we're very proud of it because here so May, be. at the radio station we have a radiothon for cancer services. Oh, very good. And we've raised over five million wow. in a period of time. And Excellent. we talk every year about the brilliance of the people. And one thing yeah. I've noticed over the years Tony, the stories, the number of people coming to us now who have recovered and are doing yeah. really well compared even to 10 yeah. years ago. So the centres of excellence, yeah. And Shona's just saying to me here, and it's a good point, this is also a love story. Yeah. Uh, and this is hard for you, this was hard yeah, for you to write. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it was. Uh, and, and, and somebody else described it in those terms to me, uh, that this is a love story. And, and I like, to be honest, I like that description, I do. Um, I, I tried to write the book as well as I could in terms of, you know, the story of Emer and our relationship and how it began, uh, how family life occurred and all of those things, and then ultimately how that was impacted. Because her diagnosis and ultimately the significant progression of her disease and ultimately her death had a huge impact on her family. I used to talk about it in the house is like we need to look at this as like it's an unwanted guest has come in to stay and yeah. isn't going to leave we have to just get used to the fact that this guest is around and let's just try and make the best of things mm. and so we just we, we, we got on with life yeah. and it was a very ordinary family life that I think a lot of people re- relate to where you know we had kids in school and with all the usual kind of challenges that we had yeah. to overcome but uh, we kept communication both yeah. between us but also with the children very much at the core of how we tried to manage things over the, the time period. We have a colleague here in the company who, who lost his wife to cancer and we all knew her very well and loved her dearly. And there's that. a line in it, Tony. Yeah. Was it Emer's line or your line? The thief of everything you hold dear. Well, I mean, that was a description of her, that, that she made of herself. That all the kinds of, everything from how she felt, how, how she looked, her physical appearance, how she felt in terms of her emotional well-being, pain, all of those kinds of things. She was a tall woman. She was the same height as me when we met first, just just five mm. eleven or so. Shrank. She shrank significantly. But she, she had four to five of her vertebrae over the time period collapsed, and she lost probably five to six inches in height. So, like everything, including her life, she lost um, over the time period, and she was robbed, obviously, ultimately of the time with the children. Now, when it all began, my son. It was, uh, it was almost 10, not quite 10. My daughter was 11. She saw both of them to adulthood. So we were very privileged mm. because we didn't, she, and she certainly didn't. I know this from letters that she wrote. She didn't have that expectation mm. at the beginning. She was living with the ever-present fear mm. of dying within a very short period of time. With you both being doctors, she had an understanding of what was hanging over her. Did that make it harder or easier to, 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 to deal, deal with it? And that's a good question. We often asked ourselves that question. In some ways it made it harder, and in other ways it made it easier. 
Like, so it was easier in the sense that, like, we understood certain things. We understood the importance of, let's say, her being cared for in certain institutions by certain teams and so on. But harder in the sense that we were aware of all the things that could happen and could go wrong and all of that. Uh, but we learned to place our trust in what was a really excellent team uh, of doctors and not to be, as it were, second-guessing them. It's a very hard thing to be a doctor as well as a husband and a father and so on. So I stepped back from the doctor role, if you like, in that and mm. stopped, if you like, looking at the literature and trying to see mm. what the Did you have to check yourself there? Oh, I did. I did. And, and I spoke very significantly to a very close friend of mine who's the head of the medical school in Trinity, Colin Darty, who, about that very question, what, what, what's the best way of being in this situation? I don't situation? want my doctor, I want my husband. I want yeah, my husband. yeah. And, and I was the only person who could fulfill that role. Yeah. I'm not saying yeah. I did it perfectly or yeah. even well, but I did it to the best of my ability. I couldn't be Emer's doctor. She had wonderful doctors and you've, you've said it about COH here, as I say, I know them. There are many, many excellent doctors here, many patients who or people who'll be listening who have cancer under the care of, of, of great doctors. The importance of placing your trust in those, mm-hmm. but perhaps not mm-hmm. blindly, being, being, being aware that, look, yeah. you know, look, Doctors, nurses, systems, none of them are perfect. Uh, uh, but, but we have excellent ones in this country. We certainly benefited from the care that Emma received in St. James's. How we knew as a general public, Tony, this was going on, was when you left our television screens mm. in the summer of 2020. Before I get to that point, when you got the word, I'm going to move on a little bit to the pandemic, when you got the word that something was brewing, and people around you, Killian de Gascoon, who I spoke to in the very early days of it here, said, we need to think about this because mm. this is going to be a problem. Mm. Had you any idea that first night, you were in a family meal, you got the first notification, had you any idea how awful it was going to get? Uh, I, I don't honestly think that I could say I knew how awful it was, how awful it was going to get, but we certainly knew from previous experience and from our knowledge and training that just because we had seen some things happening over in China, there was very like it was a high likelihood that it was going to come to this part of the world and come reasonably quickly, and so it did. The swine flu pandemic, which I'd also been through, mm-hmm. I, that was in my very early days as chief medical officer, uh, that began with the initial reports coming out of Mexico in a- late April of 20, 2009. And within six weeks, that was declared as a global pandemic. So I knew I'd that forgotten that, pandem- that actually, that yeah. it was a pandemic. I'd it was, it was declared that. as a pandemic, yeah. yeah, yeah. Which is a technical term, and it means that it's spreading in epidemic form in at least two of the five areas mm. of the WHO around the world. Um, and so, yes, that was the previous pandemic, if you like, uh, of influenza. Uh, and it became a global pandemic, as I say, from first reports within a six-week period. So we knew within a short period of time we would be dealing with cases. I think maybe some of the initial media reporting and maybe the hopeful uh, conversations that people were having was that, like, well, this is something in, in China. Yeah. Uh, let's or look. Italy. Yeah, or, or, yeah, and then it came to Italy. Uh, and not realising, but we knew. And then you, you, you spoke about Killian. Killian is a virologist, uh, an expert member mm. of our team. He, he certainly knew for sure yeah. that this was going to be with us within a short period of time, and yeah, so it was. Yeah, and it, it, it terrified the life out of us. And then you... You left the stage in, in, if you like, left the television screens in, in midsummer, and we, real, we, we, we learned that it was because of, of email illness. You were going to wait to mind her. She sent you back to work. <laughs> well, we talked about it, and like like everything, we did talk about it because mm. like uh, the summer went on. She actually did quite well after she was in the hospice at, at that point mm. in, in in July, and it wasn't her first admission to the hospice. We had great care there on many many occasions. Uh, she came home towards the end of July uh, of that uh, year. Um, in 2020 uh, and then as the summer progressed the case numbers started unfortunately to go back up again mm. particularly over the course of September it was obvious that case numbers were going back up again 
me being at home and away from work when Emer was feeling well was not normal. So like from Emer's point of view, having me around the house was almost confirming to her that things are not good. She was mm-hmm. beginning to feel much better. It's not necessarily expected. She responded well to changes in treatment over the course of that summer. Um, and so we talked about it and she felt that, you know, the right thing for me to do and the right thing for us to do as a family was to support me in going back to work. So I went back to work in early October. I wasn't to know what was going to happen. We knew ultimately Emer would run into difficulty down the line, but Emer was back in the hospice before the end of October. Mm. So and it, it was what, February, yeah. February 2021? When she died, yeah. The 19th, yeah. yeah. When yeah. you were dealing with, that was early 2021, was, I mean, we kept account of it here, this program ran off COVID for three years, two years. It was the worst. She ran, she, she died at the time when COVID was running riot. Yeah, we had, we had really, really It must have been so hard for you. Yeah, it was difficult. It was really difficult. It was difficult for everybody, though. It was not just for us, mm. though, for the whole country. Like she, I forgot to say to people, and it's, it's very clear in the book, like, she was a high-risk patient yeah. from day one. Like, that must have been hard. Yeah. To come home um, in the evenings and yeah. be, told, Absolutely. be so careful. We, we, we talked about the high-risk risk factors, but at the very top of the list of highest risk are people with conditions like multiple myeloma. So genuinely we lived in fear uh, of Emer picking up the infection and thankfully she never did. Uh, and the biggest risk for our family of Emer picking up the infection was the trips that she had to make in for treatment into St. James's. Mm. And, and no more than many other hospitals in the country, St. James's had its own challenges with outbreaks mm-hmm. from time to time. So mm. she really feared going yeah. into James's and uh, we managed Some of the other her. books have talked about, about James's and about the pressure it came under and, and, and came through. It did. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Looking back on those times and... You know, there was restrictions and then they were eased and they were back, they were eased, they were back, they was eased. You, you you write about it and it's public knowledge. There were often tensions between yourself and government over what should be done and how it should be done. Looking back on it now, Tony, you know, people say, oh, but I lost my business and my, my kids lost two years of their schooling and lost this. And, that. and there was an awful lot of loss out of COVID, not just life, not just health. 
loss of business and loss of schooling and loss of all this. Would you do everything the same now? I'm sure we wouldn't do everything the same. We know a lot more now than we knew at the beginning of it. Um, what needs to happen now, and I know government is intent on establishing a lessons learned exercise to try to establish how we might do things better into the future. And certainly there are things that we would look at doing differently. Um, the, the, in, in early last year, uh, Professor Hugh Brady from UCD, uh, and I commissioned this in the last six months when I was there, did an extensive lessons learned exercise. He had an international panel of people who looked at strengthening our public health system, produced a report that he gave to the minister last year. Uh, it was published by, by, by the government uh, a couple of weeks ago. And I think there now needs to be a discussion and a debate about what will be, and I know this is the intention, you've heard the Taoiseach, I'm sure, saying yeah. this, to set up that inquiry. And we'll cooperate because we do need to go through this. Many other countries making similar sorts of preparations just to make sure that we keep learning and keep improving. I picked up from the book, you, you don't labour the point, but, but you do make the, make the point that if bird flu, as we call it, if bird flu were to become as transmissible to and between humans as COVID did, we could be in very serious trouble. Yes, and that risk hasn't gone away, unfortunately, PJ, and I don't want to be hurt, no, you know, you no, know but just, frightening just, people. But let's just say it for a yeah, second. Yeah, absolutely. Avian flu is a much more severe form of influenza, uh, and it's one that affects birds. It's very common now in bird flocks, in in the wild and both and bird flocks occasionally in in captivity, what what the virus has learned to do is to pass from bird to bird, mm. and to pass from bird to human. So people who look after birds are very much at risk. The that virus hasn't yet learned how to jump from human to human. If it learns that, we're going to have a very significant challenge, and the risk of that has not gone away. Can we get ahead of it with vaccines and things? Well, the, 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 there are there are. Uh, so developing vaccines uh, for influenza at one level we have a head start because they we have the the process that we use every year to reformulate mm. the the vaccine um to uh to produce um a vaccine that's focused on the on the circulating strains there will be questions about the global capacity to produce large volumes of influenza uh, if that challenge arises. But many of the lessons that we've learned from COVID will be relevant. The building of the resilience from the lessons learned exercise that the government is intent on start will be critical, in my view, to making sure that we're better protected than, than we were, perhaps, uh, for this. I mean, I might offer one example of, of, of protection in relation to nursing homes. And mm -hmm. I've, said it, I've said it many times, the model of, of, of care that we have in the nursing home sector placed people who were vulnerable at very high risk and because... Well, it's true to say that the virus called SARS-CoV-2 caused COVID. The truth is that the burden of, of the impact of COVID on our society and our population was felt by people who were, in, who were vulnerable, whether they were older, whether they were people like we spoke about with underlying medical conditions, or whether they were people in socioeconomic circumstances, overcrowding and so mm. on. These were the people who suffered the burden of mortality and morbidity mm. over the course. And we really have to tackle some of those kinds of risks because I think some of them haven't gone away. Okay, okay. Come back to, to, to your own life, your own family. After, after Emer died, um, you'd known and loved this woman for 25 years. All my adult life. All you I met her life. when I was 18. She was kind of your first real girlfriend, wasn't she? Oh yeah, absolutely. I had no experience in those matters at all you, at that stage, you, to be honest. How do you deal with that, Tony? As a man, just how, how do you deal with that, being wrenched out of your life? Yeah, it was it was difficult. It didn't happen all of a sudden. Yeah. obviously, like which it was probably an, is harder, does it? It does in some ways, but it also means that, like you know, 
there was a lot of it, you, you, you may be familiar with the term anticipatory grief. Mm. Like a, we knew what was going to happen and we did a lot of it in the way of preparation mm. uh, for that. Um, obviously it impacted on our families, impacted on relationship and I've tried to be honest about that. Uh, I wasn't always at my best in every circumstance that I found myself at home in helping Emer, and I have to think about that um, because it's just for that length of time and with all the pressures on the family it's not always possible for us all to be perfect uh, all of the time. Um, and so it did impact our family in a very significant way. Um, and, uh, you know, we lived with it, as I say, for, for, for a very long period of time. And one of the things that I think Ema was upset about was, was the, the idea that our children, particularly our son, who was only nine at the time, found it difficult to remember a time when she was well. Yeah, Which I think is really, it was really sad. That's uh, that was really sad. You that's know, Ronan. How, how are yeah, they doing now, Ronan? Claude? They're good. Uh, they're in the twenties now. At yeah, time. yeah. Ronan was twenty-one last week, and he's he's gone into third year in actuarial studies in UCD. Uh, and Clever he's boy. Playing senior football with uh, Temple Oak Sing Street, our local club in Dublin, and my my daughter. Cloda is in Trinity and finally you're in physiotherapy and she's on a clinical placement up at the moment in Cavan Hospital. Mm. So, yeah, they're getting on. How are they dealing with it two years on, really? I I think, well, um, like we communicate as a family. We find a way of speaking about it all of the time. We're very close. They still live at home uh, and we're in each other's lives, very much so. Um, I was chatting to Claude on two or three occasions this morning as I drove down here. Um, uh, you know, we stay in daily contact with each other and, you know, we, we celebrate together. I go to all of Ronan's matches and mm. not to his training sessions anymore, but all to all his matches and all of that. Mm. Uh, so uh, no more than many other Irish families, we are close mm. and we've, we've kept that closeness. And I've tried to ensure that the children find it okay and natural to talk about, to mention Emer mm. in conversation on a continuing basis. Mm. And of course, we all, the three of us, we all have our, mom, we have our moments mm. you, when you, we find it difficult and we're able to talk to each other about that. Yeah. You, you have somebody new in, in your life and one of the nicest things people said to you are some, who was it said to you that Emer would be, would be happy for you? Well, it was, it was Emer herself because she, she left a series of letters. She left letters for her family and friends, but in particular letters for the children she left three letters for me that were written at different stages in the course of rooms that's how I know about what I mentioned earlier on her living with the ever-present fear of of dying Mm. early on in the course of the illness but she addressed in writing the question of me meeting somebody and she wanted me to to move on and maybe find happiness with somebody else in the future. And she and would have known the person that you know. No, 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 no. She didn't know that. No, she didn't know the individual. Kira, isn't it? Yeah. Kira. But as it turns out, uh, Kira's best friend is a friend of one of ours that we talk about in the book. Uh, so you know, no more than Cork. I'm sure Dublin the Times is too small. And um, uh, but but the person who mentioned it to me was Emer's older sister Orla, who's now the president of of UCD. Uh, I rang Orla to tell her because I wanted the the, the the Feedy family to hear this news from yes. me, and I rang Orla to tell her that I had I'd met Kira, and uh, she she said, "Oh, I'm delighted delighted for you." She said, "You know, Emer wanted this for you." She, yeah. she told me that and I had not, I didn't know that up to that point and I mean that was an emotional moment for me because yes. I could feel Emer's support in that yes. and uh, yes. of course Emer didn't want to die I didn't want her to die I didn't want our marriage and our relationship to end yes. uh, uh, cancer intervened um, mm-hmm. but Emer you know in her I think love and support for me uh, found a way of letting me know that she was supportive and I've been very lucky and I feel privileged to have met right. Kira. Tony, I, I must bring something up with you because it's very big, been very big locally. And sure. I've spoken to one member of Two Two One Plus from Cork. I've spoken to half a dozen of them. Okay, and I know you go into detail in the book, and people can go and read the book. Uh, one person that I did reach out to, whose name I won't use, said, "Look, Tony has written his book. He's entitled to write his book. It's his view, 
Uh, what happened to my family happened to my family. And the account is there from the time the minister rang you to say we got a problem and we need to investigate. Would you do everything the same way again with regard to cervical check and what happened? Uh, in terms of writings, if I was to advise anybody to leave my view out of it, there's a, there's a man called Daniel Murray who writes in the Business Post who writes the most accurate and truthful account of one of the most misunderstood issues in, 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 in relation to care. The majority of the population doesn't understand, unfortunately, that this audit only happened for people after a cancer diagnosis was made. It didn't form mm-hmm. part of their treatment. It didn't form part of their diagnosis and management. It was an after-the-fact review to see if an opportunity had been missed or if there was learning that could be applied to try to improve the service for people into the future. And, uh, and it was added, if you like, as an, an extra layer of quality assurance to our programme. The UK and a couple of other countries were doing that, but most countries didn't. And when that audit was introduced, our programme said that it wished to give the information back to the women concerned. And I certainly had no objection to that at the time. There's a minute, isn't there, from 2016 where you say that? Yeah, I mean, we, we didn't have an objection to it. like the, Because it was being given back to, to, to but women. when you it, found that it hadn't it, happened... Well, I'll, I'll come to that, but we, 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 we knew in the UK it was being fed back to people and in, in, in one other Scandinavian country, and there weren't any issues about that. So we saw that as a, as, as a positive thing. But in this country, what happened was the, the audit process was designed. We now know that the colposcopists, who are the specialist gyne- gynecologists that you refer to when you have an abnormal smear, they hadn't fully bought into and weren't part of the planning to the extent that, let's say, it was all ready to be fully implemented. So when the information relating to a woman was sent by the screening programme at the national level to their colposcopist or gynaecologist in order to be fed back to the women, some of those gynaecologists didn't feed that information back. Now, that wasn't known as a fact until... I led a small team of people over the course of that very first weekend after the, 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 that first case involving Vicky Phelan came to light that established that knowledge on the Sunday afternoon that the number of people for, where this, what's called discordance, in other words, a different interpretation of the original smear in the audit, uh, there were over 200 such cases uh, and there was only evidence in the clinical charts that only about a quarter of them had that information fed back. So that was the first time that anybody knew that mm. there was widespread non-disclosure. And that, uh, and that was a significant breach of trust because women believed that they were going to have this information fed back to them uh, and it wasn't. And the centre, so when I say the centre, I mean that the, the screening programme who were running this, they, they didn't have a, a feedback loop that would allow them to know that the information had or had not been fed back to it. There were a lot of people, Tony, uh, rightly or wrongly, blamed you for that non-disclosure. Yeah, well, I had no. I, I understand that, and I understand I was a visible. And person, probably still do, perhaps, uh, and they're entitled to their views. I wasn't in any way involved in the management and oversight of the screening program, which was run by the screening service, which mm-hmm. is a part of the HSE. I didn't work in the HSE. I worked in the Department of Health, but I did have. I was the chief medical officer. I had policy responsibility mm-hmm. for the entirety of the, 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 if you like, the clinical health services. And coming back to and my, my question on it initially was, yeah. that, would you do everything again the same way? Well, I, to be honest with you. I would think more critically about the step of the feeding back of that information because in retrospect and on the balance of the information that we have available to us now, I think that there are other countries, just to point out, Netherlands is an example, Canada is an example, where there's law 
that protects clinical audit from this kind of information having to be shared back with patients for these very reasons. And I think I'd probably be more sceptical about the value of that because this wasn't information that was being used to improve people's individual clinical services. They'd had their treatments. Mm -hmm. Uh, but it was information designed to improve the quality of the screening program. One thing I think that's important to point out is the screening program, and you'll know this, was based on a so-called pap smear, which is a good test, not a perfect test. It has now been effectively replaced for the majority of women by a test that picks up the virus that causes Mm -hmm. HPV, uh, causes cervical cancer, sorry, human papillomavirus, HPV. It's a a group of over 100 viruses. A number of them cause cervical cancer. And we can vaccinate against it. You can pick up the virus with the HPV test and you can vaccinate against it. So we're well on the way now to eliminating cervical cancer because we have got vaccination and we've got screening and both of them working really well. It's the only cancer we can say that about. So it's really exciting news for women. They've done that that in Australia. They're parts of Australia. Absolutely right. And and you you write a lot in the course of the book about the changing of medical knowledge and research in various things over mm-hmm. the years. Come back lastly to, to Emer. Yes. Um, who, and this is the thing, Tony, we got to know you well over the two years of the pandemic, or we got mm. to know that side of you well. I have a picture in my mind of uh, an intelligent, funny woman who was probably your best friend and your harshest critic when you needed one. How will you remember your wife? I, I think that's a, that's the pretty accurate description of her. I'll remember her that she was a she was a very private person. Uh, she was she was shy, but she was fun. She was energetic. She was witty. She was warm. She was loving. She was supportive. She was all of those things. She was most more than anything a wonderful mother, like so many mothers to her children. Then once we had Claude and Ronan, they were the centre of her world. But she was <laughs> she was at her best in the middle of her wider feedy family, where she was the kind of life and soul of. And people who might know her all that well might be a little surprised to hear that about her but actually when you put her into that family environment on the beach in Ballybunion where we spent two summers every or two weeks every summer since the children were born and she was going there since she was a small child uh, holding court in a circle of people sitting on deck chairs drinking tea and telling jokes and funny stories yeah that's that's those are the kind of memories that make me smile alright Dory it's been a pleasure to finally meet you your book your book is a joy to read Thank, thank right, you very thank much, you very much. I really it's appreciate called, that. It's called We Need to Talk, written by yeah. former Chief Medical Officer Dr. Tony Hullin. Tony, thank you. Really grateful. Thank you very much. Thanks, PJ. Corks 96 FM. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.